the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. We've got Christmas all wrapped up as we bring you our guide to the best new history books for the holiday season. From coffee table tomes to pocket-sized stocking fillers, our panel of guests have lots of gift ideas for the history lover in your life this Christmas. And we'll go straight to that panel of guests who've been assessing piles of books for us over the last couple of weeks. With me here in Dublin is historian Cathy Scuffle and Mark Duncan, director of Century Ireland, down the line from Mayo. I'm joined by historian Sinead McCool. You're all very welcome indeed to the programme. We're going to start with a couple of beautifully illustrated titles uh, first of all mark one of your picks is lost ireland by orla fitzpatrick yeah it's a stunning book it's landscape fully color this is a book i know orla fitzpatrick is perhaps the ideal person to put together a book like this she's a uh, photographic historian so the illustrations are well chosen they're absolutely beautifully produced by the publisher she makes a very important point in her introduction that by examining our architectural heritage they provide multiple routes of access into all sorts of types of Irish experience. You know, uh, look at our cotton mills, look at our handball alleys, look at our old eviction cottages. You know, you can explore all aspects of Irish history by looking at the buildings. I suppose some of them no longer exist. Mm. You know, the very first difficult building. to represent something that isn't there anymore. Well, it, it's it's done very well with, with the illustration, but the very first building in the book is Dunluce Castle up on the North Antrim coastline, which I visited during the summer. So that still has a very commanding presence on the landscape when you visit it, but it's been evacuated since the 1690s. Others were never built to last. Like there's a water chute there from, which was built for the Cork International Exhibition in 1902, 1903. You know that was pulled down shortly after. Other fell victim to mishap or to events. So there is the Metropole Hotel, which was destroyed, obviously, in the aftermath of the 1916 rising. There's the Public Record Office, the Forecourts, which was damaged during the Civil War. There are also buildings in here, I think because there's such a wide array of locations. You know, an awful lot of counties are represented in here. I think people will be actually drawn to places that they're familiar with, either they live live close to it or they visit it on their holidays. I was looking, for instance, at a couple of hotels in County Wicklow in in Bray that would have been built in the mid-19th century, whereas the railway would have come down towards Bray and it would have actually prospered as a tourist location. One of them was the Marine Station Hotel, the other was the International Hotel, which at one point accommodated 2,000 rooms. It was the biggest hotel in Ireland. You know, it gives a sense of how that town would have grown and developed and its population would have expanded on the back of that leisure and uh, tourist boom of the late 19th century. Obviously, they went into decline, you know. They, they struggled commercially and then both of those buildings would have suffered. Uh, one of them, the International Hotel, would have suffered from a fire and it, it couldn't be rebuilt. It is now a very popular location. It is now a bowling alley uh, <laughs> and snooker hall. But architecturally, it is an eyesore when you compare it to what would have existed there uh, beforehand, you know. And the, and the Marine Hotel now is a very popular eatery, but again, it doesn't have any of the architectural grandeur that it would have been there mm. in the late 19th century. Lost Ireland by Orla Fitzpatrick, um, published by Pavilion, that's the uh, the name of the book. And Cathy, one of your picks, it's a kind of a sequel, uh, title from Irish Academic Press, Old, Old Ireland in Colour 2. Two. 
That's right. It has these two cheeky little young Irish lads on the cover. A real gem of a book. I mean, lovely one for the coffee table. Mm. Um, by John Breslin and Sarah Ann Buckley, um, that's I should it, mention. Yeah, yeah, by John Breslin and Sarah Ann Buckley. I, I think they've dug really deep into Ireland's archives just to find the photographs. But what I love about it is the little vignettes that go with each photograph. You're you're getting the story of each photograph and a little bit of a background to it. And it's digestible. You know, you can just pick it up, look at the picture, read a small amount and you get the whole story. If we can get over the fact that they would have been originally black and white mm. pictures, and then you obviously don't have a problem with colorization. Some people do. Some do, but when I see it in a book like this, no, this really works because it brings it to life. Uh, I've often remarked, though, you know, I'm a redhead, so when I'm when any black and whites me are colorized, I'm black hair, you know. <laughs> so, so that, but they seem to have overcome that because there's plenty of redheads in this book. So I think that won me from day one. Yeah, it, it's one of those. It's definitely, as you said at the beginning, a stocking filler. I can imagine this would be a must-have for a lot of the mams of Ireland, and I think it would travel very well as well. I Just think. give us an example of some of the photographs, some of the ones that grabbed your attention Yeah, in there particular. was a couple in there. I mean, we can go back to the days of uh, the clergy. Mm. <laughs> They're there in their, all their colours. That was one that it kind of picked out. But it's a flash of a bygone age, I think, and something that we might have forgotten about. That was one that I had chosen. And then, of course, I love the way she just picks up the tiny little things. The old hurling, an old hurling stick. You know, they're very simple, normal, everyday lives picked what out. What fascinates me about, and I think Mark might agree with me as, as someone who's into the sport, is not so much the, the colour of the hurling as the shape the of shape the hurling. Of it, exactly. Because it's completely different. Yeah. And that's the way they were back in the, what, the early 1900s or when and, and the GAA was founded. And much heavier to hold. Mm. And uh, that aligns with a game which is very much kind of played along the ground. The game now is actually all about in the hand and yeah. the movement. Mm. And I mean, it's more shinty Absolutely. Uh, than, than a hurl or a shinty stick yeah, or hockey, hockey or whatever yeah. than, a, than a hurling stick. So that's, that's, I mean, that photograph is worth it for that, for that, that alone. alone. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not just the fact of the chap standing there with the hurl, but it's what's going on in the background as well, because you've the, the lady at the door of the cottage and you've the whole picture. There'd be a lot more that you can pick up because it has been colourised, enlarged. It's like that digitisation that you can zoom in and you actually get an appreciation for it. And again, the piece about it is just a short paragraph, nicely digestible. The picture draws you in first and then you'd get the story when you turn the page How over. far back historically does it go? Obviously, it can't go back beyond no, the 1850s, I, I, I think I suppose. It, it's from then onwards. But right. remember, this is a sequel, so mm. they're picking up other ones that they have come on from since. A lot of them I would consider much more modern, certainly mid-20th century. But them and themselves need to be told. I mean, they're stories that we... Well, yeah, they're becoming history too. Mm. So it's just lovely to be getting back to the normal. Away from the heavy stuff for a while, there is social history of Ireland captured beautifully in this coloured book. Okay, and uh, that's the uh, Old Ireland in Colour 2 book by John Breslin and Sarah Ann Buckley, published by Irish Academic Press. Sinead, one of your favourite books of the last 12 months or so is Darkness Echoing by Gillian O'Brien. Just tell us about it, uh, first of all. Sure, um, Miles. I'm delighted to be able to talk about this book. It really had a, a great uh, impact on me. Um, I, I suppose it's its title, Darkness Echoing, and its subtitle, Exploring Ireland's Places of Famine, Death and Rebellion, is probably the reason I'd like to share it with your listeners, because it may not be a book that they would pick up. 
I was drawn and came to it because I heard the author being interviewed on radio and it was the way that she told the story of her research. She had decided that she was going to do a survey of, you know, sites, tourism sites, starting off with 20, then it became 50 and then ultimately 200. But what's groundbreaking is the way that she writes the book. It's rare that when you're reading an Irish history book, particularly one about Ireland's troubled history, that you'd find yourself laughing out loud. It's the way that she writes. It's, it's groundbreaking in the way that she looks at the historical past and weaving back and forth, explaining her own experience, her own life experience. And she's a really, really good writer. So one of the things that she has in, in relation to it is that she travels around to these various sites with teenage relations. And then also another of her companions is her fiancé. And then as the book continues on, he becomes her husband. And it's a travelogue over a number of years. She's um, based in, a, in the UK as an academic, a reader in modern Irish history. I think it's in John Moore's university. So she's travelling back and forth by plane to Ireland to come to all these different places. And he's a great counterfoil because he's obviously the person to explain the, the Ireland's relationship with England. But as you go through the book, you, you sort of more or less fall in love with him as well because he's a really good balance to her. And he, you know, has to be drawn into the various stories of the famine. And, you know, he ends up uh, going to Kilkenny. And, you know, sort of you're with him when he, he ends up in tears. He ends up in Donegal and he's looking for some light relief when he's in Glenvey. And they go in because it's raining. They move out away of the beautiful view if people are familiar with the Glen Bay National Park. And they go into the, the house um, and they read an exhibition panels to pass the time. And of course, they discovered that there's the whole village was evicted. Mm. And so it's the way that it's written, Miles, it's so important. And I think that um, we wouldn't have known there would be such a massive change with the tourism industry. So basically, it's also a work of history because some of the places that she visits, you know, don't, won't exist into the future. Uh, there's also an incident, I think, that struck you particularly, which takes place in a pub in England. Is, is that correct? Oh, yeah. Well, when, when she was in England, she's, you know, she's watching a match and she walks into the, you know, the pubs that existed here and, and existed there. And, and the, the late 90s where, you know, a woman walking into a pub with all of the sort of the men and turning at the bar. And, you know, they try to nearly put her out of the bar. And I'm, you know what, people have to read this book because I'm not even explaining it with the way that she weaves the story. But it's this idea that, you know, the feeling that she doesn't belong there till she ends up watching the, you know, the, the game. And then when her team, you know, loses, someone sends her a pint of Kilkenny down the bar. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, and, and it just, it's just this thing and that would you understand about it? I think she explains very much for me that the work of the historian is to absorb all around you, to analyse it as it's happening. And she continues to visit this bar, you know, gain the stories of these men. And so I think that there's many books in her. And I'm so delighted that her publishers, the Penguin Random House, who, you do it under the imprint of Doubleday Ireland, who actually saw how skilled she was. And, and again, many, many, many congratulations to her. And I urge people to go out and buy it and uh, enjoy it over Christmas, a Christmas pint. Maybe Kilkenny. <laughs> Maybe Kilkenny, yeah. Um, okay, that's a double day production. Darkness Echoing, Exploring Ireland's Places of Famine, Death and Rebellion by Gillian O'Brien. Uh, Mark, uh, Frank MacDonald's new book is called A Little History of the Future of Dublin, which is a strange kind of anomalous title. It is, but when you realise that the book complements an exhibition in the Little Museum of Dublin, you kind of get to understand where the title is coming from. Frank MacDonald's obviously been writing about Dublin for Mm. over 30 years in the pages of the Irish Times. His first book, The Destruction of Dublin in 1985, was 
you know, a savage account of the mismanagement of Dublin at that point. And he, none of the passion that Frank portrayed in that book has dimmed in any way over over the years. In this book, it, it kind of comes through in this book. It's it's a wonderfully concise and accessible book on Dublin's development. It's provocative. It's a marriage of history and contemporary criticism. Like it's only 200 pages long. By page 63, you're probably up to the 1990s, which kind of gives you an idea of where the balance is struck. I think what shines through though in the book is the importance of vision and leadership. Like MacDonald is very much in favour of a directly elected Lord Mayor for Dublin with, uh, with full executive powers. What joins through also is the long-term consequences of decisions that have been taken previously or perhaps not taken previously. Uh, he laments, for instance, as many people have, the failure of successive governments to implement the Kenny Report in 1963, which recommended that land could be purchased compulsory uh, for urban development, you know, at agricultural prices plus 25%. He laments more recently the failure of NAMA to kind of shift the emphasis away from developer-led planning. He also looks at reports that have taken place in the past and have shaped the way that Dublin has developed over the last number of years. The right report of 1967, I think it is, which advocated that, you know, you would create... Dublin's population was beginning to seriously expand at the mm. time. You accommodate them in four new towns, like sort of Talla, Blanchardstown, and places like that. And also a Dublin Transport Authority report from 1971, which effectively becomes the template for the M50, you know? So this is all about a development on the edges of Dublin, you know? The consequences of that, of course, was that by the early 1990s, the population of the city centre, the core of the capital had kind of collapsed down to about 84,000 and that was kind of the lowest point ever. It's now climbed since there. I think by 2011 it was up around 136,000 again. But as we've seen, as we've seen, more needs to be done for that because when the pandemic hit, we kind of realised just how difficult it was for the city to sustain itself when commuters were not coming in, uh, mm. coming in to work, you know, restaurants, pubs, shops, retail, everything struggled simply because the type of development that we had, which emptied out the city and concentrated on the edges. He does, I think, suggest that the future, I mean, I know this is the history show, but we, you know, the book is about the history of the future. It's not necessarily high rise. No, he, he's not a fan of high rise, but he is um, a supporter of high density development, mm. which is not the same, yeah. you know, and it's just it's how you build and where you're building it. It's also about transport as well. Like this book also looks at things like climate change and the impact of it. You know, it talks about rising sea levels and the threat that that poses for a city which is built upon the coast, you know, all the way from Rush down towards Bray, you know, there's a lot of communities which would be vulnerable mm. to kind of rising sea levels. Cathy, staying in Dublin, because I know you're, you know, you have a great research interest in the history of local Dublin areas and communities. You have another beautifully illustrated book by uh, Jed Walsh on the banks of the Dodder. Yeah, and well, firstly, I'm going to admit that Jed is a pal. I was in college with Jed, so I couldn't believe it when I saw he actually had a book out. This is absolutely gorgeous. It's on the banks of the Dodder, Ratgar and Churchtown, an unusual mix. Normally we'd get Ratgar, put him at Rat Mines mm. maybe. So I just thought that was a lovely, to take the river as the centre and just look at the two developments on either side. And he really writes it from the heart. I, there's just no other way of describing it. And he just, using the river as a centre and he pulls the history of the areas together beautifully. So you get things like the trams going right back to the horse drawn and then bringing you up to the electric and then 
they disappear. <laughs> uh, so you get that story, the old story, the trams there. Uh, picking up then on old businesses uh, like the Monument Creamery and the Dye Works at Dartry, bringing us back to a time when the river was an industrial mm. point. We needed it for the dye works, for the mills all around Dublin. And then he pulls in very nicely the mansions, the churches, the various houses, the housing styles and, of course, unusual things like the Bottle Tower. That's the church town side. So we, we sort of get this rural-urban thing going on, which I just thought was really, really what, well done. Does he explain what exactly? I mean, I know, you know anybody <laughs> who has ever travelled in South Dublin knows the Bottle Tower, but, you know, I would hazard a guess that very few people know what it's actually for, what it was originally it's for. Very, it's very similar to the uh, the wonderful barn, as my understanding, out around Kildare. You know, mm. it's, so it, it's a link back to that time when they were building things that were just for everyday use, but making them look really elaborate and, and part of the feature of your estate. And so it wasn't for burning things and it was for storing things. things. That's, yeah, that, that's okay. my understanding of it. But yes, just looks, yeah. looks more interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and the other thing that I think Jed nails really nicely, and this is a big thing for me, is that when you get the national story and that international story and you just pull it right back to the local. So that's what he's done. He, he looks at 1916, he looks at the War of Independence and IRA ambushes out that area, all that type of thing are just brought into it. So you really feel like you're in the area at the time and it's tapping into the outside world, chipping on nicely. Again, it's just a beautiful production. I, I understand the original in- number of illustrations was to be about four or five it's over 80 in it. So, uh, <laughs> right, got, so got out of hand. Yeah, say, but it, it, it is just so nice. And you'd pick it up. Anybody with any remote connection to that mm. part of Dublin is going to love it. Yeah. And it's probably a very, very good example of how to do an illustrated history mm. of an area. Jed Walsh's On the Banks of the Dodder. Mark, staying with a, a local history, sporting history in yeah. this case, you've been looking at a book from O'Brien Press, Semple Stadium Field of Legends by Liam O'Donoghue. And uh, it, it hadn't occurred to me, now, you know, pardon me for being like this, but it hadn't occurred to me. There's a place called Semple Stadium, so there must have been somebody called Semple. There was. Tom Semple was an All-Ireland winning hurler from Thurles uh, with Tipperary and subsequently a key administrator in the Tipperary uh, County Board. There is somewhere in the archives of this building here, Miles, uh, a wonderful interview Okay, between the late writer Raymond Smith and Vincent Brown, where Raymond Smith imagined his own death in Semple Stadium at a Munster final between Cork and Tipperary, where he would his body would be passed on the hands of supporters uh, from the Killanan and, and placed on the sideline as the match went on around him. It gives a sense of kind of how a sports venue can acquire a certain sacred status. And if you read Liam O'Donoghue's book, you get to plot how that actually happens. You know, these venues weren't always landmark sporting venues. This was only acquired in 90... Well, it was only acquired. It was acquired, I suppose, before Crow Park really was. Uh, it was used as a as a agricultural society grounds up until 1910. It was acquired then by the people of Thurles uh, for £900 in that year. The local newspaper uh, proclaimed at the time that it had been secured for the gales of the town shortly after. But actually, it doesn't really come into GAA control until the 1950s. And then it's acquired really so it could uh, benefit from development money. Mm. 
So the big transformation in the importance of Semple Stadium, and it doesn't become Semple Stadium until 1971, it's the third sports ground up to that point, but the big transformation is the 1926 Munster Hurling Final replay when it establishes itself as a venue for big matches. One of the local traders said that it was akin to four fair days uh, in the town, the amount of business that kind of came into it. So it, it charts all the great players all the famous games that took place uh, at the ground. It it charts, as you would expect, developments, progressive developments in the stadium in terms of player facilities, spectator facilities and all of that sort of stuff. And there was great disappointment down there when it wasn't used as a venue for the 1934 Jubilee, so the Jubilee All-Ireland Final, but it was the venue for the 1984 Centenary Hurling Final. And there was a massive redevelopment done prior to that, which gave rise, obviously, to the Fela Festivals. Um, and there were only four of them. There were only four I of them. I sort of think of them as... There's, there were dozens of them, but there were only well, was, four. I, I, I did attend the first one in 1990. I got off a train in Thurles and waded through uh, rubbish up to my knees, I think, uh, to get down to the ground for that one. But there was a dead hangover from mm. the redevelopment for the All-Ireland Final of, of 1.2 million or more. Fela got rid of all of that. Fela got rid of that, you know. And, and then they got uh, rid of Fela when they paid off the debt. It did make a return, I think, about 30 years later, you know. Okay, so Sinead, you're going to look at uh, two books, Margaret Ward's Unmanageable Revolutionaries, which has been reissued with uh, uh, with alterations, with changes. It's been updated uh, since it was f- first published in the 1980s. That's by Arlen House. But you're also going to talk about uh, On Dangerous Ground by Maura Comerford. It's now out from uh, Lilliput Press, edited by Hilary Dully. Um, I mean, obviously, Maura Comerford was presumably, she was one of the unmanageable revolutionaries, wasn't she? <laughs> yes, you could say that. And um, that's the title that sort of lived on. Just to, to recap for a moment on that, the, the Margaret Ward book, believe it or not, was first published uh, 38 years ago. I mean, if you think about it in the context of 83, as being seven years before Mary Robinson was elected. So for all those, it, again, it just makes it such a powerful book that it's still so current and still so alive. And, and Margaret Ward would have actually interviewed Moira Comerford. And, and in a way, um, I didn't realise that she also writes the introduction to this memoir that, that everybody's been waiting for for over sort of uh, two decades because we knew it existed and Margaret had spoken to Maura Comerford and knew that she had hoped to publish it in her lifetime. She died in 1982. So it's really exciting that these two books, I suppose, are, I'm talking about them together. Ireland House, which is, of course, this, a feminist publisher with a really long history and a, a huge output, has taken Margaret's book and really brought it into the current time, even down to the fact that the image of Hannah Sheehy Skeffington is reflective, I suppose, of the modern time of this rallying call of activists. She's there with them. You know, speaking out at the time, and and I suppose you know this is written by a feminist, Margaret Ward herself, an activist and involved in politics, and her understanding when even from a young age of of who she was interviewing, what she needed to know, and I I my copy of the original book is is in tatters, and um, because I always go back to check what Margaret has to say when I'm going to write up something. Even uh, there recently, I was looking up about it, how I would describe the you know the the mothers, the organisation that was set up in 1922. So I went back 
checked what Margaret had to, had to say and then went from there. <laughs> but I, I suppose what, what we're looking at here is, is more illustration, which, which is expected and more of the time. So that's wonderful. I hope that people come to it for the first time because it's a gendered history of the Irish Republic. You know, it's got the longer span in terms of the time frame. But I think what's really important is, is that she explains the foundation of women's protest, of organisation and, and political, sort of a political change over that period. And, and I suppose it's, we, we spent a lot of time and journalists still talk about, you know, the forgotten women and the forgotten story. Well, I suppose it's bringing this book, which was well known to those who were, who were specialist, maybe 20, 30 years ago. And now it's now in the mainstream. So a, a brilliant book for Christmas for, for anybody, um, male or female, as we put women back into the canon of Irish history. And then Maura Comerford's The Memoir of an Irish Revolution. Now, people would be familiar um, with, with Maura Comerford because she would have been so telling some of these stories in Survivors. Some of this material would have sort of been in the public domain in, in other forms. But this is her speaking unfettered. And what I've decided to do is, and I hope I can do her justice, and I, would, I actually started to read a lot of this book out loud because it lent itself to that. And so I was getting carried away practicing for here. So to try and take on Moira Comer's voice as we hear the first-hand account. And in, on page 12, she says, My parents were musical and hoped for musical talent in the family. In this, I was the conspicuous disappointment. <laughs> Coaxing, coercion and even bribery to induce me to stay at the piano all failed. Instead, I developed tactics of passive resistance, which were to serve me well in other circumstances of life in later years. So, if, uh, so again, and I'm going to go to the next stage, just another um, one, because, again, I, I think this is doing it justice. So, so years ago, Joe Comerford, who was married to Hilary Dolit, who's taking on the bringing out for us the family archive, who talks about how you know, when she came to know um, Joe's much-loved aunt, that she had known of her, her archive, her papers, her story. So it's been a long time in coming for, from Joe and from Hillary, and I, I just applaud them that it's here. So anyway, this is the bit. So Joe lent me the piece, which was in Ordinary Woman, which was when Maura Comerford posed it as Edith Lewis to go to America to fundraise. She was anti-treaty, of course, as many people would know. And so she goes, she's on her way to America with a false passport. And this is her story in relation to that fake passport, which is there. She said, I went to Switzer's department store and bought myself a grand rig of clothes. I arrived at Dunleary and boarded the mailboat for my first leg of my journey to England. Of course, she was leaving from there. I was there well before departure time, thinking that I could lie low somewhere on board. But I was rooted out and told I must go up on deck to buy a ticket. Then, being at least partly on the run, I found myself in a corner of the dining room with my back to everyone. Suddenly, I heard this cheery voice. Look, there is Moira Comerford. Let's go over and talk to her. As it happened, my departure date was the same morning that James McNeil free state high commissioner in London, married Josephine Ahern, formerly of Cumannamon. Newly married Josephine and her recent husband, James, made a great fuss of me and insisted that I should travel with them. It was no love match, I can assure you. I found no way to escape their attentions. I tried to flee at Hollyhead when we docked, but once we boarded the connecting trains, James McNeil was sent searching for me. It ended up that I had to accompany the happy couple in their first-class compartment on the train to London. It was the extraordinary turn of events. 
Here was I, a Republican fugitive on a secret mission to America, with thousands of my comrades in jail or dead, sharing the private compartment of the High Commissioner of the Irish Free State and his bride. <laughs> and she got honestly, a first-class seat. It's, a, it's honestly a page-turner. Mm. Buy it. Right, that's On Dangerous Ground by Maura Comerford, a wonderful memoir. It's out from Lilliput Press, edited by Hilary Dully and Margaret Ward's Unmanageable Revolutionaries, uh, reissued by Arlen House. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more history books for Christmas after these. My guests are Sinead McCool, Cathy Scuffle and Mark Duncan. And uh, just uh, want to give a quick mention to two nicely illustrated hardbacks. Um, a, the Old Galway Diary is a selection of writings from Tom Kenny and Ronnie O'Gorman, who for years have been telling stories of their native Galway in the Galway Advertiser each week. Combining history and photography, it illuminates the city's storied past. All proceeds from the old Galway diary book go to the Galway Simon community. Another beautifully illustrated book is Malton's Views of Dublin, the story of a Georgian city by Trevor White, which tells the print-by-print story of a young artist creating a portrait of Georgian Dublin in the 1790s, and that's published by Martello Publishing. Now, obviously... Centenaries being centenaries, a lot of books being published at the moment centred around the Anglo-Irish Treaty. We're going to take a look at a few of those now and we'll start, Cathy, with Midnight in London by the prodigious Colm Kenny. I don't know, does he does he sleep at all, the number of books he's had out in the last couple of years? Uh, this book, to my mind, is the one you should have in your back pocket. If you're trying to get into the heart of the treaty and all the negotiations that were going on, this does it, and it does it so well because it draws on an awful lot of primary sources. You get a lot of witness statements quoted in it. It highlights the events. It shows you the people. You start getting a real sense of what it was like just to be there. It's almost like a diary of events all around the whole negotiations. And I suppose even the title Midnight in London just conjures up something. Yeah, there was something a bit special going on here. The eyewitness accounts in it are, are just brilliant and they're small size you can capture it it's a real dip in and out book um, if you're just trying to find some little nugget that just gives you a little bit more of a flavour of what can be quite a difficult subject to mm-hmm. actually discuss the other thing I loved about it was you get a real sense of the pressure building it's like living in a pressure cooker as you're working your way through the whole treaty and you can see it building and building and building and you get a real sense of what Collins and Griffith were going through at the time, they were facing down the most powerful people in the British Empire. And there's five of them and they're being worked on slowly and brought through and things that they think are hugely important are being suggested as being non-important events. And that's what I love because you can kind of pick up how it was all working through. I mean, they were facing down people like Lloyd George, Winston Churchill, you know, people that are huge international historical figures. And I suppose, too, by the end of it, when I got through to the end of it, and again, you get through it pretty quickly. Like It's a lovely pocket-sized book. You can see that they're looking at the treaty as a stepping stone. It's quite obvious that it's a stepping stone to achieving something else in the future. And then the line... 
both Griffith and Collins were dead within a year. Okay, that's uh, not a spoiler. Um, not a spoiler. We kind of knew <laughs> that was coming, yes. kind of knew that was coming, all right, yeah. So, uh, Midnight in London by Colm Kenny. Colm used to be a journalist now, uh, much more of an academic than a journalist, but uh, Gretchen Freeman approaches it, I think, approaches the treaty with the sensibility of a, a journalist in her book, uh, which is called The Treaty, The Gripping Story of the Negotiations that Brought About Irish Independence and Led to the Civil War. That's yeah. uh, from Marion Press. Yeah, she pretty much jumps in with that one. And it is written in a journalistic style with a journalist's eye. You can certainly feel that. Where the other one I felt was more a researched piece. She's almost on the step reporting. Mm. You know, that's the sense you get from it. And again, she brings you through from day one and builds you slowly through the two months. So it's it's quite it's quite an interesting contrast uh, the two of them together. Yeah, I mean they're they're both short enough that you mm. can manage both of them over Christmas and uh, get that get the benefit of that contrast in the two different approaches. Mark, you've been looking at Birth of a State, the Anglo-Irish Treaty by uh, Michal Fartig and Liam Weeks. Yeah, it's perhaps more analytical than narrative. The books that uh, Cathy's been talking about um, and it brings together political scientists and historians. So that's probably no surprise. Um, they make a couple of points both at the outset and the conclusion of the book, which I think are important. The first one is that the idea that a, a fully independent, sovereign 32 county republic, they said that was never on the cards for the reasons that we, we at no point did you have two equal states in negotiation. Mm. And that was underlined, obviously, by the threat of war towards the conclusion of the negotiations themselves. The second point they'd make towards the end is that the treaty they say is in unloved or for reasons to do with its association with partition, even if that is a reality prior to the the conclusion of the negotiations. And also that it becomes identified with a party political system, which was ill-suited to deliver the more progressive ideals of the revolutionary generation itself. Um, There's a couple of elements of the book that I I was kind of drawn to, and it's perhaps less the history than more the kind of political science, perhaps because I've seen so much of the treaty kind of woven into more general histories of the period. The political science here is really interesting when they actually look at who the members of the Second Dáil, the people who they say press go on the new Irish state, all right, that, that was to come into being. You know, they examine the socioeconomic backgrounds of the 121 TDs, look at it by age, by gender, by religion, by education. Now, some of what they find is not a surprise. You know, five, 5% of the TDs were, uh, who voted on the treaty were women. You know, that's more than women were better represented in the Dáil than they were in, in Westminster. But still, by the 1911 census, half of the population in Ireland were women at the time. So it's still very low representation. I think it was only three or four of the TDs who voted on the uh, on the treaty were non-Catholic. Again, not a great surprise, given that unionists wasn't, weren't represented uh, in the chamber at the time. But there's really fascinating details, for instance, on secondary education and Irish language acquisition, for instance. So 67% of anti-treaty TDs had a secondary education against 53% of pro-treaty TDs. 89% of anti-treaty TDs professed a proficiency in Irish against 55% in favour of the treaty. Overall, they would have found that membership of the Second Dáil was not necessarily representative of the population, but it was representative of elites uh, that you would find in other international revolutionary groups, you know, at the time and, and subsequently. There's also a very interesting chapter which examines the the Dáil debates themselves. Now, there were 440,000 words spoken over those 15 days from the 14th of December to the 7th of January when the vote was actually taken. 
40,000 of those words were spoken by De Valera. So about 10% almost. Yeah, he makes, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah, he, he, makes, he makes 334 individual contributions. To, to put that in, uh, you know, to put that in comparison, Collins and Griffith combined would speak as much as De Valera during those debates. The average... Uh, length of a contribution there was 3,600 words. So you can see while a lot of the TDs contributed, it's very much dominated by the Sinn Féin elite on either side of this. You know, there's also analysis of in the debates, which I found really interesting about it. It's not just who spoke, but when they spoke, you know. So Griffith really comes into his own on the last day. You know, and they also run in, in the very same chapter, you know, and there's charts to illustrate all of this. They run using software technology, what they would call a readability or sentiment index. So they found that, you know, overall, over 70 percent of, you know, the contributions were cast in kind of a negative terms. You know, there's a kind of negative sentiment toward that changes on the last day. And that coincides with when Griffith kind of comes into his own when they're actually trying to sell the treaty and get it over the line. Also gives a sense that actually the outcome of the debates were actually, was, it wasn't cast in stone. Even though the newspapers were running totals as they went along, there was still an element of doubt as they went into that kind of final day. You know, and it also kind of does a kind of a word index, which again kind of underlines the issues that came to the fore in it. So, you know, the Republic, the Oath, they all appear frequently. Where but not I'm, partition. But not partition, not Northern Ireland, not the North, mm. you know. Which brings me on to the next book. That book, by the way, is Birth of a State, the Anglo-Irish Treaty by uh, Michal O'Farthick and Liam Weeks. And that brings us on to Alan Parkinson's A Difficult Birth about the early years of Northern Ireland. Yeah, Parkinson's written, written quite a bit about the early years of the North. Most notably, I think, his 2004 book, Belfast, Unholy Wars. You know, this reaches beyond that in the sense that it extends it to the entire six counties that became Northern Ireland and extends it in terms of the period it looks at. It looks at up to beyond 1922 up to the Boundary Commission and just beyond. He draws on a lot of the research from his previous books. You know, and one of the strengths of that was some of the interviews that he had conducted, which must be now 25 years ago, at least with some of the people who would have been children at the time of the birth of Northern Ireland. And one of those people would have been his own father who told stories about loyalists with revolvers running past their front door and firing shots down into Catholic streets. You know, he talked about a, the, a friend of his father. You know, in their home, a bullet would have been shot through the window, would have hit a young girl in the spine and, con- and condemned her to a life uh, in a wheelchair. So violence is certainly a theme that kind of runs right through this book. Although... Parkinson, as he did in Unholy Wars, rejects the idea that Catholic population were subjected to what what is called a pogrom. He says that 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 term doesn't actually fit because it wasn't directed exclusively. Violence wasn't solely directed at one community. He would have said that there were hundreds of casualties among the Protestant population as well. So he charts the ebbs and flows of violence through 1920, the riots in Derry, the expulsions from the shipyards, 1921, while we had a truce here, there was a continued yeah. violence, particularly in, in around Belfast. 1922, the chapter is called Armageddon. You know, this is when the violence really intensifies. You know, he highly goes into detail into the infamous murder of Owen McMahon, his three children and a barman. He was a very prominent businessman, Catholic businessman. He was shot for no other reason than he was a Catholic. They were all, McMahon and his children were told to say their prayers before they were actually shot. There was uh, a couple of months later, Later, uh, the killing of three young men and Cushion Doll. Again, these were done by police 
and by soldiers without consequence. So the, the violence, it was violence with impunity. And one of the impacts upon this, of course, was to actually alienate the Catholic minority, you know. And he, he, he gives an awful lot of criticism, I think, to the Northern Ireland administration, particularly J- James Craig. You know, he said it's a, for their, I think he calls it a leth- lethargic response to the violence towards uh, the Catholic community. He also has criticism for the Catholic minority for absenting themselves from the state. And he said what that actually, the effect of that and the IRA violence in the North, he said, was to have a profound impact on the Protestant psyche and their sense of siege. But I I, I kind of, I still have a bit of doubt about his claim that the Northern Ireland Catholics' refusal to participate in the public life of the state, right, enabled an unchallenged unionism to effectively focus on self-protection and have ensured that discrimination became embedded. Um, that's probably true, but it implies that kind of Catholics were almost kind of party to their own kind of, mm. um, to their own, uh, you know, they were kind of involved in their own discrimination. I don't think that's a fair comment. Yeah, one thing that is clear, of course, is that uh, almost as many died in, in and around Belfast during that period as in the cockpit of the War of Independence. And that was, uh, that was Cork, in or around 500, 500 people. That's Alan Parkinson's A Difficult Birth. Um, Cathy, on the subject also, still of, of partition you've been looking at Birth of the Border by Cormac Moore Yeah well Cormac is a fellow historian in residence with Dublin City Council and what I love about Cormac's particular book is he looks at uh, the impact of partition on the whole country in some ways it just highlights for you the things that stayed together as much as the things that broke apart. So I suppose we had two different justice systems for a start and it has an effect on the major religions quite obviously. And of course there would be different approaches from both jurisdictions. But what happens is uh, Cormac highlights for you the way there was major disruptions with things like post fishing, your electricity supply, all of those things were affected by this partition that appears in Ireland. But then a lot of the bodies stay together. So we get a lot of our sporting ones, for mm. example, that are all Ireland. Soccer is really the only major one, the, really one, that's, one that's split. That's split yeah, yeah, exactly. And most the major religions are all Ireland as well, which is you know an, another thing that we we see it in everyday life, but we don't really realise that it never really broke in that way. The trade unions, of course, most of them are on a thirty-two county mm. basis as well. It was really with politics that the jurisdictions sort of broke apart. And Cormac does that really, really well in his book. And I suppose what it does is, if you, when you read that, if you take into account all of the talk and all of the books that we've had on the treaty and everything else, what Cormac shows us is that although there's differences socially and culturally, we're living with them and we're living with them today and we're finding a way and I think Cormac does it really particularly well. So it's a nice balance to all the treaty books as well. Okay, that's Marion Press's Birth of the Border by Cormac Moore. Um, to move away from that particular subject matter, Sinead, you've been looking at something very different. Uh, Four Courts Press's Country House Collections, Their Lives and Afterlives by uh, Terence Dooley, who of course is, uh, and Christopher Ridgway, Terence being uh, the man when it comes to the big house existence. Yes, sure. He's the director of the Centre of Historic Houses in the States, History Department in Maynooth. And this is um, from the 17th Annual Historic House Conference. So it's been an area in which that he has made a massive and others a massive contribution over the, the decades. It's the it's 2019 conference um, that took place. And um, I was sort of thinking when I was, I was going to review it that it's pre-Zoom, the pre-Zoom world. So book lovers have benefited 
are having what I would describe as a more satisfying way of absorbing this material away from the screen. And I spent uh, over the stormy weekend curled up in a in bed with a with a heated blanket. And I thought, yeah, this is the way to do it. I get away from the screen. And I, of course, went back to my first love, I suppose, in many ways, because my degree is history and history of art. And I thought it was a really interesting discussion again against what we were talking about in terms of this decade of centenaries, because it's up against the backdrop of the discussions around empire, colonisation and what, you know, misappropriation of artefacts. It's the house and um, country house contents. And I think I'm anticipating Terry's book next year, you know, in relation to what he's going to be writing around the destruction of the, the big houses. But this is a series of essays of people working in the field. And what was really important for me to sort of to read this book really in advance is that, you know, the destruction of the, the big houses, you know, came about much earlier. It comes out of, you know, taxation in the 1880s and, you know, in, about the selling off of land and the land war. You know, it's, it's just a reminder that what happened for generations is the swapping of contents from one house to the other. And as, as contributors make the case is that in some cases, you know, the new destination for a painting maybe would be a better place for it to be hanging or a better place for, for it to be displayed or may have more relation to the house. And I think that one of the things that was very heartening about the book was, and again, it sort of brings me back to Darkness Echoing in a way, because it also encouraged me, I started writing lists of, of country houses that are open to the public, both north and south. And they talked about the Celtic tiger, you know, where, where houses have been, you know, redecorated and, and, and had collections reestablished in Abbey Leaks and Ballyfin and Stack Allen. And some of them are small hotels. We'd know of them from places like Hidden Ireland, but also, um, you know, private homes. And the idea being that things are coming out of museums where they're deaccessioned. And for an example, Charles Coote came back to Ballyfin from a Virginia museum. So there were lovely details like that within the with the essays within the structures, the, the way that they're looking at it. But the what was it was particularly interested in was that when you look at the lives and afterlives of these objects, it sort of tells a different story of Ireland, I suppose. It's more about getting us behind the walls of all those big houses and estates. And it establishes Irish art and Irish collecting and Irish personages and the, the wealth that was in Ireland and that, that really just seeing it as sort of on an international stage. It's beautifully illustrated in the way that it has pictures from the houses themselves, paintings. It's always wonderful to see things that are in private collections. And of course, they, they're really great source material for people then in turn doing exhibitions and curation. And of course, the OPW have been looking a lot at that over the years. But I suppose what's really and um, sort of timely is and really uh, interesting is that um, it's talking about, again, we talk a little bit, we're in a hit the history show, but it also talks about the future and it talks about, you know, about state collecting and the transformation of somewhere like Farmley. And sort of so the pride that's in these these country homes, which is taking it away somewhat from what the feeling of was apart that these people were people who were from abroad, but it, but the people who had lived in Ireland for, you know, 300, 400 years and had had patronised and been patrons of Irish art and, and Irish craft makers and all of those things that we sort of celebrate in the modern day. So it's a wonderful book and, and a, re, a really, really great read and a huge variety of contributors as well. Published by Four Courts Press, that's Country House Collections, Their Lives and Afterlives by Terence Dooley and Christopher Ridgway. We're going to take a break and we will be back with a rapid fire round after these. <laughs> Welcome back. We are going through Christmas history books uh, for you. We've read them so that you don't have to. Well, no, we want you to read them. So <laughs> here we go. This, uh, th the last section, very, very quickly, starting with uh, Mark Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny. Yep. 
brilliant book that was originally published in 2016 after the American election. It has now been reproduced in a graphic edition. Schneider makes the point that history, it doesn't repeat, but it does instruct. And he draws lessons from the 20th century European experience to let us know that societies can break, that democracies can fall. And I suppose the example of what happened in America last January brings that point home. I still prefer the original edition, which was pocket size. This is a book for your shelf rather than your pocket and to be handed around. But I do think that the illustrative content that is here will actually have an impact on different audiences. I think people will engage with this book in a different way than they did with the original. Okay, and uh, two books, two new books that look at iconic parts of Dublin. Cathy, St Stephen's Green by Frank Hopkins. Okay, very quickly, if you want a supplementary guidebook, this is one like no other. It takes the green, puts it at the centre of the story, goes north, south, east, west, and a few of the roads off it. Um, you get all sorts of stories from Dan the Liberator all the way through to Darkie Kelly, and we, she has a whole story for another programme. And you get plenty of tales of rioting on the green, a horse race, and it'll explain to you who exactly was Copperface Jack. Yeah, so buy the book and find out. <laughs> yeah, and lots of hangings in Stephen's Green yeah, as well. O'Connell Street, Mark. O'Connell Street, The History and Life of Dublin's Iconic Street by Nicola Pierce. Yeah, really informative book. It's sweeping in its coverage, so it takes O'Connell Street from its pre-modern form when it was known as actually Drogheda Street and it mounted little more than a lane that didn't even run down to the Liffey. Follows its transformation in the 18th century uh, under the MP and property developer Luke Gardner and obviously subsequently the Wide Streets Commission. And it looks at statues, looks at landmark buildings. as a chapter on cinemas, an awful lot of which would have emerged in the early 1920s, which kind of reflects, I suppose, the growth of cinema as a popular form of entertainment at the time. Chapter on murder and mayhem, gatherings on O'Connell Street. And they would have included, for instance, I, I never knew that the Apollo 13 crew would have travelled in a white sports car down O'Connell Street in 1970. I was familiar, obviously, with the arrival of presidents and St. Patrick's Day parades and all of that sort of stuff. But it, it's a really, really good book to anyone kind of visiting Dublin. One complaint I'd have, though, um, Miles, would be I think it deserved a more handsome production. No street in Dublin deserves the full colour treatment quite like O'Connell Street. Mm. And I think here the publishers could have done the author a bit of a favour by going big. It's more expensive, obviously, to produce, but the book deserved it. Okay, when it comes to going big, there ain't nothing bigger this Christmas than the Coastal Atlas of Ireland, Sinead. Third in the series of books, of these wonderfully produced books from Cork University Press. Started with the Atlas of the Famine, then the Atlas of the Irish Revolution, now the Coastal Atlas of Ireland. You have 37. Seconds to summarise it. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would have all the others on my shelf. I would really um, like these books from Cork University Press. Uh, yeah, even to lift it up now, it's been it's been a bit of a struggle. It's a uh, hundred authors, thirty three chapters, nearly a thousand pages, five hundred illustrations. You know, nine eight four pages. Incredible. Yeah, going through a mixture of art, mixture of maps. Um, the use of graphs. I mean, it's what, what I really wanted to pick it um, for as the book that I was going to talk about is, is, you know, when you hand over a book at Christmas, you want to, have, as I said, have a statement. This is a statement. But I'm really, really big into intergenerational books. So the idea that if you have family or you have a grandparent over, it's not that it sits on the coffee table, that it's something that children go through. And a little bit like the, you know, the years of the Guinness World World Records, mm. you can be imparting a bit of knowledge, you can be looking at pictures, you can do it bite size. And at the end of the day, we are an island. I am, I'm living in the county with the longest coastal reach. <laughs> Sometimes you end up in a period, you know, where you're looking over and you really feel like you're on the edge of Ireland. So what I would say to you is absolutely beautiful book, beautifully produced. Well done to it, Cork University. 
Christ, it would not sit on my coffee table. It would collapse my coffee table. Um, <laughs> another title from that. Cork University. Oh, you should see my coffee table. Uh, another title <laughs> from Cork Uni- University Press. Sharon Murphy's The First National Museum. Yeah, no, Sharon Murphy's, and again, just to echo what was said earlier on, I would have liked this to be a lot more illustrated, you know, and the illustrations that are there are really good, you know. I think, again, for the idea of this loved institution, the Dead Zoo, which is sort of known as to the work that Sherry has has done here in relation to it, the scholarship is there. And what I would say here in relation to this book is that she's, you know, the work and the hours and hours and hours. If you write a novel, you can produce it a lot quicker. We should be celebrating and buying from Irish publishers, but Irish writers, because there's years and years and works in, in, in these books. Yeah, and Irish bookshops as well, obviously. That's Sharon Murphy's The First National Museum. Um, Cathy, one of your choices looks at the history of hobbies and crafts. Vaughan Corrigan's Irish Tweed History, Tradition, Fashion from O'Brien Press. Yeah, this is uh, Vaughan's second one. And I suppose I've chosen these Irish Tweed and her first one was Irish Aran. Uh, if you think back, the lockdown during COVID-19, we got a renewed interest in all types of hobbies and crafts. And as a result, this Sorry, I was just making banana bread. <laughs> well, that's what other people were actually looking at doing different things, such as uh, the Hedford Lace and Linen Project in Galway, which is fabulous. And then the one really close to my heart, the Liberty's Weavers in mm. Dublin 8. And I suppose in these two books, Vaughan has worked her way through them. She captures the history, she captures stories. And in the case of the Irish Aran one, she even looks at the patterns and their meanings behind them. And it's just wonderful to see them all pulled together like this. And just to quote her, these are parts of Ireland's legacy and their stories enrich us all. Okay, that's Vaughan Corrigan's Irish Tweed History, Tradition, Fashion from Orion Press. Mark, another title you've been looking at, this is from Arlen House, All Strangers Here, Personal Writings from the Irish Foreign Service. And and who knew there were so many great writers working Uh, for the Irish Foreign Service? Absolutely. I'm still picking my way through this book and I think that's how it's intended to be read. All the contributors to this are are listed alphabetically. So the book is arranged alphabetically. What that means is there's no kind of thematic coherence, Mm. but it does mean you actually spot family connections. So the Brennans, McDonough's, the O'Briens are all represented in here. There's some terrific material in here and it's a very eclectic collection because it does include poetry, memoir, essays, fiction. So some of the non-fiction contributions that I've been looking at include uh, a brilliant piece by Daniel Binchy who is Ireland's Free State's first representative of Germany in 1929 and he is writing in the early 1930s about his impressions of seeing a young Adolf Hitler in Munich in 1921. Uh, a man he describes as very un- unimpressive in physical appearance until he speaks and then he's effectively transformed into this kind of demagogue figure you know he sees him 10 years later and he is the same man riffing on the very same anti-semitic themes that he was in 1921 brilliant piece also by Anne Anderson who was the permanent she's 45 year career in the Irish diplomatic service she is a first in many cases but she just talked about the difficulties that women faced, you know, from the 1970s and 80s in in establishing and building career in the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs, you know. She makes a reference to one very open comment that was made in the mid-1980s that Irish America was not ready for female diplomats. You know, clearly that wasn't the case. And uh, Joe Hayes, who was first secretary in Moscow in 1986 when the Chernobyl 
disaster occurred, talking about just the difficulty of sourcing information on the ground at the time and how they would have had to go to the Americans and the Germans and the UK embassies just to actually piece together what was actually happening and the fear that engendered amongst the, mm. amongst the diplomatic community there. Sadly, nothing from uh, James McNeil on sharing a first-class compartment on the way to London with Maura Comerford in 1922. <laughs> I Sinead. have not finished the book, Do you want to finish with uh, something for younger readers? Break the Mould, How to Take Your Place in the World by Sinead Burke. Yeah, I suppose in a way, you know, when you think about history writing and, and of the moment, we always talk about trying to get the first hand account. And what I thought was really important about this book was that it, while it, like Sinead de Valera's books in the, you know, writing about Irish princesses for the first time in the 1970s to Sinead Burke now in the present time, I mean, she really teaches you know, adults and children alike about, you know, how we look at the world, looking at unconscious bias, ways of acceptance and, and stories, I suppose, of individual people who changed the world by their inventions and the way that they thought. And so it's it's a lovely, colourful book with lots of drawings and illustrations in it. But I suppose what I would say as well is that, um, you know, any children that maybe find it difficult to read or to get into reading, again, it's the sort of book that you can sort of break up and, and read them in parts and maybe, you know, at, you know, at bedtime and, and reading. And I just think that she's really inspirational. And so when we look at, at people making history as well as writing about history, you know, I'd, I'd give a shout out to Sinead Burke for the way that she speaks to us all. Thank you. Right, well, thank you. That's all we've got time for. Thanks to my guests, Sinead McCool, Cathy Scuffle and Mark Duncan for their picks and their insights into these newly published books. We'll put the details of all the books mentioned on the show tonight on our website, obviously, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher, Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Duncan and producer Lorcan Clancy. Goodbye and thanks for listening.